Do you like data centers? Cause I love data centers! I love data centers. I love data centers. We love data centers! Welcome and thank you for listening. This is your host, Sean Patrick Terrio, founder, CEO, and catalyst of Open Spectrum. What you can expect to find here on this podcast are fresh new conversations with some of the most successful, experienced, and fascinating players that I have met while working in the data center marketplace over the past decade. For those who already know me, this probably goes without saying, but I can assure you new listeners that there will be no marketing fluffery or sales BS here. In fact, this is specifically a no marketing fluffery and sales BS zone, at least for the next hour or so. My objective is pure. It's to simply share some raw, honest advice and entertaining stories that will hopefully teach you something new, maybe something thought-provoking and maybe even enjoyable about the industry that drives the brave new digital world that we live in today. Pretty excited, I'm not going to lie, to bring to you this week the episode that has been recorded with Garrick Sturgill. Garrick is a good friend of mine who works out of a data center in the Pacific Northwest. He has been in the industry for a very long time. He dates himself a few times if uh, it, during, <laughs> during the course of our conversation. Uh, he's one of the most interesting and fascinating characters, hands down, that I've ever met out of the thousands of people I have met in our in our industry. We actually came to meet randomly at a conference in Las Vegas and quickly hit it off over numerous shots of tequila at a bar that I cannot remember for the life of me. But I hope you enjoy the interview with Garrick. We discuss a lot of topics such as uh, not only how he got started in the data center industry, but his work within the Weston Building Exchange, the WBX in Seattle, as well as uh, methodologies for cooling data centers and the role of Big Brother in the data center marketplace. So enjoy the interview here with Garrick Sturgill. So Garrick, thank you so much for joining us on uh, this this episode of I Love Data Centers. It's uh, it's a pleasure to to have you. Ah, uh, yeah. Good morning. Good morning, buddy. So where where are you right now? I'm actually uh, I live in Seattle. Are you born and raised in Seattle? Born and raised in Seattle. Yes. So you are a a lifer in the Pacific Northwest. I am. There's no better place than the Pacific Northwest. <laughs> Once again, man, I greatly appreciate you taking the time. I know our friendship goes back a number of years. I think we met at a Gartner event in Las Vegas. No, nope, it was Af- it was AFCOM. Yeah, so I think you were at an AFCOM event, and I was oh. at a Gartner event. Oh, right, right. Okay, okay. And, yeah. and we uh, we were at some kind of a digital realty happy hour. As as true to true to how the universe works, we hit it off instantly talking about who who r- rules the world, and uh, <laughs> then proceeded to go to a tequila bar and drink mass mass quantities of tequila with uh, a couple other mutual friends in the industry. <laughs> yes, Garrick, I've invited you to to join me on this podcast because you have a rich history. Uh, working in the data center industry, specifically inside the facilities on an operational level. And I think it's it's that experience that you have that would be invaluable uh, to hear some of the lessons that you've learned for for our audience and for our listeners of, of this podcast. 
so to, to kind of kick things off and to provide some context, what what is it really that you do these days? These days, um, I kind of I'm still in operations. I'm more network focused, meaning um, layer one, meaning the actual physical fiber and where the physical fiber connects to uh, undersea fiber. I'm also technically my title is director of network strategy and technology. As far as operations, I do sit in a sales engineering role as well, supporting salespeople, making sure that they don't sell anything that we can't deliver. But that's basically in a nutshell. And how many years have you spent working in and around the data center space? I would say 25 years. That's uh, well over half my lifetime. So, so the, and you're, you're working out of a data center, as I understand it, in Tequila, right? Uh, actually, it's in a city called Puyallup. It's about, if you were to do fiber route miles, it's about 39 miles to downtown Seattle. So we're south and it's going, you know, uh, Seattle's north. Yeah. So from, from the airport, that's in basically uh, SeaTac, right? Which sits more towards Tacoma, but somewhere in between Seattle and Tacoma, you're about... You're southeast of the airport? South, southeast. So how did you get your, I know you've got some some interesting stories about how you got started in, <laughs> in the industry, but uh, I think that would be, it's an interesting, the context around how you got started in the industry, I think is, is an interesting story here. So um, what's really interesting is when I was thinking about, like the first time that I was in a data center, I was in high school. And uh, actually, I was getting out of high school, and I was interested in technology. I was going to, like, a community college, and, and I took some computer classes and stuff. And, of course, when you're, when you're 19 years old, you know, your parents are like, all right, either get out or uh, get a job or get a job and go to school or go to school, you know. So I'm like, all right, great. So I'm looking at the job postings and there's this posting at this community college and it says, no experience necessary. We're looking for somebody to work in a data center. So I called the number and I went and applied. And it was really funny. It was uh, it was sitting in a data center and it was for a shoe company called Avia. I had to sit there and they had these massive uh, printers or like teletypes. And it was basically the shoe orders that came in from all over the world, and they print out these labels. And my whole job is making sure <laughs> that the labels didn't get jammed up in the printers. But, you know, I was in a data center. So when you're in an environment like that, you know, and you're young, you're really inquisitive. I was just like, what's this? What's that? You know, and I'm seeing these, like, what are they, the old VAC systems? And uh, they had... Um, you know, the programming languages were like Fortran and COBOL and stuff. And I, I, I don't remember if Windows per se was in there. That was 1989, I believe. But that was like my, you know, like I was kind of exposed to it. I was also a DJ, so I had this other job. <laughs> I was a club DJ. Um, I was also a mobile DJ. So that took me to... Actually, I was I was 
at the time, I was my my parents owned a computer store, store. So I've been exposed to computers for. Yeah, that's that's a key piece of information there. So I, I didn't even know that. <laughs> so, so you grew up around computers your entire your entire life. Yeah, you know, like uh, there's this old computers and IBM or sorry, compact is compact computers. Like one of the first portable computers had these like 3.5 floppy disk drives on it. It was really big, you know, it was like the size of a, of a large gun case or something, you know? And, um, I, I was exposed at a very young age, um, to always expose computers. I mean, my first computer was a TRS 80, which was old Radio Shack computer. And it had like 4k RAM and you know, I was messing around and programming in basic, you know, but, it, you know, for me, it was, you know, I was always playing video games. So the computer to me was just a portable stand up video game machine, but you you still get exposed to it. And then further on, you know, through high school when, when I worked in the Avia data center, I mean, you know, I mean, I was familiar with working on terminals and stuff like that. So I was, gotcha. I was so like a math. When you were in the data center, you kind of understood the context of, of what you were doing. It wasn't a brand new paradigm. And strictly, you know, just working in the data center, you know, as far as like when I had that job when I was 19, you know, they had generators and, and UPSs and stuff in there. But, you know, I didn't know what that infrastructure was. You know, I was just I mean, I was I was pretty young. You know, I was more fascinated with the uh, sounds and the blinky lights and, you know, working around, you know computers because you know when you're young when i was younger you know the coolest movie about computers was war games and uh you know so that it just your whole like and then growing up we're watching star trek and stuff like that so you know i was, I was more of a science fiction you know buff and so working in a data center was was like the ultimate thing for like a nerd i was pretty uh i was pretty stoked uh, I, I only stayed at that, that job for eight months. So my DJ career was, was taking off. And so I shelved the data center career and I was actually living down in Portland. I moved back up to Seattle. When I got to Seattle, um, I actually started throwing uh, rave parties. And, um, you know, I had this great job. I was making pretty good money. And I wasn't really exposed i had a pc at home because i was doing graphics and doing more software stuff uh, for the parties and then um so i used to read this magazine called mondo 2000 and it was basically like a cyberpunk magazine and just talked about technology just in general you know not necessarily data centers but just it started talking about the world wide web can you define cyberpunk people that are into like fringe art fringe technology kind of like kind of living you know living in the moment and being around cutting edge technology it's there's a there's like a whole culture to it now i mean they have these like cyberpunk underground conferences and stuff i'm pretty sure they still do cyberpunk you know kind of morph into dot-com people not necessarily the hacker community i mean you could say that the cyberpunk community kind of became the hacker community, sort of. Um, I'm sure if there's some old schoolers that are listening to this podcast, it'll probably be a debate topic. But um, with, with living in Seattle and being around Microsoft up here, the cyberpunk community were like these like hardcore computer programmers, software engineers, 
listening to, you know, there's a massive electronic music community that used to be at Microsoft. There was, there was, you know, because the, because they paid those guys, they were kids actually a lot of money. They had all this excess money. So they were always buying, you know, electronic hardware and for electronic music making and synthesizers, Hmm. you know, it was like this, it was like this, like, technology kind of punk movement. Kind so of like, what, you know, what kind of music were you playing? Were you doing house music and EDM stuff? or I was doing house music. I was doing uh, deep house. Um, there's different genres. So it was uh, Chicago house, Detroit house, a lot of techno in there, a little bit of trance and pre uh, drum and bass, which morphed into jungle. But now, now it's back to drum and bass, mainly house music. Um, with our company that we had. Um, so you're so you're a DJ in Seattle. You're mixing it up for a bunch of Microsoft well-paid young young geeks. At what point do you get yourself back to to the data center world? Well, I also have this like fantasy about working with fiber optics. So I I went and I I took a certification class because in order to work in what's called a central office, which is a which is a carrier POP, POP stands for Point of Presence, you got to have you had to have some certifications in order to work in there, especially if you're going to work on fiber. Because at the time, fiber was kind of like a black art. There was only a handful of people in Seattle that actually worked on fiber. I think there was only like maybe six or seven people that actually were splicers in Seattle. So I got that certification and. Um, I immediately started working with a with a friend of mine who actually uh, he was a, a pioneer in like fiber optic technology. So I had this like a mentor to basically teach me about you know optical. Uh, originally, it was uh, uh, video over fiber, audio over fiber. It was almost like a hybrid role, um, doing like broadcast media and stuff, and in the you know, and at the time, you know, the broadcast was, you know, they could see the future, you know, they're like, hmm, the internet, this is interesting. What's funny is the very first data center that I ever worked in, and I guess I can talk about it because I'm not under NDA anymore, but um, but the very first, like, focused servers, pre-internet connection coming in, I believe it was a, I think they were bonded T1s. Uh, I worked in uh, Paul Allen's data center <clears throat> out on his property on Mercer Island. And what, what I did in there is um, I built the uh, fiber infrastructure um, that connected his different um, – he has this massive property on Mercer Island. We were, we were basically pulling fiber between his buildings, you know, like his, his art gallery, his main house. You know, everything was home run back to the data center because we were distributing video, audio, and of course, um, internet connectivity to the to the main house. You probably um, had a fat line going back to that house then, huh? It was probably one yeah, of the few we were, people in that area with, with to the yeah, residents. we were yeah. Well, you know, money was no object for the one of the founders of Microsoft, so we were running. I believe it was. Um, uh, OC48, which stands for Optical Carrier 48, which is it is an OC48. I believe it's what 2.5 2.5 gigs. I believe. I haven't played with the with the OC stuff in a while. 
Um, so yeah, two, 2.5 gigabits. Cause at the time he was doing some crazy stuff. He was doing like uncompressed HD, you know, he's doing all kinds of weird stuff, um, for his private residence. And the funny thing was, is that while I was working on, on site, you know, there was all these other contractors on there. And this one contractor was a company called Evergreen Technologies. And I met the project manager for that. And he was like, hmm, hey, um, hey, would you be interested in coming to work for us? And, um, you know, we want to get into fiber and we want, you know, we need, a, we need a splicer. You should come and work for us. I'm like, yeah, great. What do you guys do? Oh, we, do, we build uh, data centers. And I was like, what? <laughs> I was like, I'm there. Uh, the very first project that I was put on was building the uh, uh, very first, to me, it was like the first Amazon data center, but I'm sure they had one. I mean, they had a presence in the Weston building in Seattle, but it was only, it was in a co-location facility. The very first data center was down on Third Avenue in downtown Seattle. Like it was down underground under this, an old bank vault that they were leasing. And I just, I just, you know, I started working down there and walking around looking at the, the EMC gear. And, you know, this was in, this was more into the, into the early nineties. You know, I just started beco- becoming really, really familiar with it. And then I started working at the place that I spent the most time at, which was the Western building. Hold on. I've got a, I've got a question here. The yeah. the decision that you made just to get into to fiber and getting certified in and around fiber optics, was that yeah. a strategic decision that you made kind of seeing what was going on in that space and knowing that that would be in high demand? Or did someone make a recommendation or how how did you make that decision and kind of see that as an opportunity? Early on, I really understood infrastructure. In order for a data center to work, it has to have connectivity. So my strategy in my head was one, to stay employed <laughs> at all times, like be the go-to guy with a plethora of these disciplines. So getting into fiber and knowing that every single facility on the planet needs connectivity and needs somebody to install that connectivity and turn that, you know, it, it, was, it was a strategic decision for staying employed. <laughs> no, that's, that's, that's good. Um, I, ironically enough, I made a very interesting and, and similar type of decision when I was in, had to go work in corporate America for you know a variety of reasons. Wife and I got, got pregnant and I was an entrepreneur at the time. And my wife basically said, go, go get a real job. So I went into corporate America and I realized very quickly that I, you know, being an entrepreneurial background, I knew business, I knew how to sell. And if I was going to sell anything, I wanted to sell something that I knew wasn't going to go anywhere. And I worked briefly for about a year selling software development. And I realized that software kind of comes and goes. It's needed, but it's not sticky. Any application or software as a service company that's hot this month may not be 12 months from now, but the physical infrastructure doesn't go anywhere that supports it all. And so that's what really turned my gaze towards the data center space and was lucky enough to, to get into that industry and fell in love with it very quickly because of that same reason. It was just a, me understanding the system and understanding what was going to be critical and core to the development of the internet over the long haul. And it was the physical assets themselves and the physical infrastructure that, uh, that I started to focus on. Yeah. I mean, data centers are, you know, I mean, you, you have to think of them as an ecosystem and they're, they are an ecosystem, you know, they're living and breathing, you know, if you're brand new and you're getting into the, 
into the data center industry, you need to really understand it from like a holistic level. It just makes you a better engineer when you understand all the parts and all the pieces. You don't have to be an expert at everything, but you have to think about it intelligently um, because all the pieces all fit together. And if the fiber's broken, the data center's on an island. So, I mean, even early on, I mean, even though like those cliches that people use, I mean, I was I was thinking about that at, at a young age. You know, I'm not young. I mean, in my 20s. And not really uh, working in an actual operations role, you know, in, in a facility. You know, I started off being on the infrastructure side, um, fi- you know, physical infrastructure. You know, not, you know, I didn't get into switches and routers till later on. But the physical infrastructure was the most important part of, of a facility, whether it be a central office, you know, a pop, meaning, you know, like a, like a hut out in the middle of nowhere that the fiber connects to, um, you know, to an actual data center. <clears throat> at the time, the data centers, the large ones were, um, were enterprise facilities, corporations, you know, banks, software companies. Kenworth up here, the big trucking manufacturer, they had their own data center. It was a pretty cool data center. Boeing had massive facilities. We're talking the '90s, right? So mid to late yeah. '90s. Yeah. So that's, I think, that's an interesting, interesting topic too to explore. Is in the '90s, you know, what types of data centers existed, and what you're saying is they were primarily purpose-built enterprise facilities for single-tenant customers. Yeah, yeah they're you know most most of the facilities were the big you know the big enterprise enterprise facilities. Well, like I said, like Boeing and Kenworth had a pretty small facility. I believe it was about 2,000 square feet. Boeing had massive facilities, you know, because Boeing was running uh, massive Cray supercomputers and stuff, you know, and they had big storage facilities. They had big silos with big, their big tape, robotic tape silos. <clears throat> I worked in all of those facilities because everybody was wanting faster and faster and faster uh, transport networks and internet networks. And, you know, Copper just wasn't cutting it anymore, you know, multiple T1s or it just things were getting faster and faster. And that was that was another point that I wanted to bring up is that it was really weird, you know, like before the Internet, we kind of moved kind of slow, you know. <clears throat> and then when the Internet came along, um, life in general started speeding up because all's what, you know, all that we were talking about was, you know, oh, what's your Internet connectivity at home? Oh, I have 56K, you know, 56K was pretty slow but um if we think about it today i mean i have a gig to my home right now so you know it just kept on speeding up and you know people wanted bigger pipes and in order to have a big pipe you got to have fiber it's all holistic you know it's all it's all an ecosystem you know i didn't really concentrate on 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 the whole software piece because you know in in my world um i was the physical piece you know, and I'm working on these like pieces of gear that had embedded systems in them, not necessarily software in them, but the software was embedded on a chip inside inside the hardware. I saw COBOL and Fortran kind of went away, and you know, Unix was big, and in in the early '90s, I met some people that were actually on the on the Linux. So you, you started seeing Linux coming out. You know, you know, you didn't. I didn't really get into software. Until like later on, because I because I just didn't care about it. I didn't care about 
how the web actually worked. I just cared about the backend infrastructure that supported the web. So how'd you start moving up the stack? Because you, you were working on the fiber, but then you eventually got yourself into the facilities side of the house. Yeah. Yeah. Um, when, when I started moving up the stack was when um, I started working in um, the West, uh, the Weston building, which is now called the WBX exchange. In the Weston building, originally the Weston building was the part in the region where I believe it was uh, AT&T and Sprint were the two long-haul carriers uh, that originally met each other in the meet-me room to do a, a cross-connect between each other to connect the both, both of the networks together. So more and more carriers wanted to build fiber panels or build infrastructure to get up. It's actually on the 19th floor of this building. So there is a lot of work to pull fiber from the street and pull it all the way up the riser and then break it out and build these fiber panels. I spent years building out fiber infrastructure in that building. And as you're rolling up and down the elevators, there's all these little companies sprouting out of the woodwork. Uh, I believe the very first co-location company that I was exposed to was the Mead Group. This guy named Malcolm Mead um, had this data center in the Weston building. <clears throat> I think there's a there's um, there was another facility in there. Um, comp- I believe it was Compass Communications. This guy named Yale Wong, he was the owner of that company. <clears throat> you know, they were kind of hosting you know they were they were the, some of the first co-location companies and they were hosting these new you know these new startups these mainly uh i believe in colo or it's actually called colo centers now before yeah before it was Mal, or the mead group um amazon was their first like router was in colo centers and then um also we can't forget the the largest industry at that time was the adult industry. So mainly everybody that was the, the largest customers in the '90s were adult customers inside of the inside of the Weston building, and they were moving the most traffic, meaning the most internet traffic. Also, Disney Internet they were hosting Disney.com, NASCAR.com, NBC, ABC. Um, you know, because the the TV networks were experimenting, you know, with the internet, uh, not necessarily streaming video, because that wasn't. They were just doing, um, you know, banner ads and you know, news stories. You know, it was basically just like a simple website. So you know, I was, you know, I was around that. I'm running around that building. So let's let's wrap some context around that building. So so for those sure. who have never been to the to the Western Building or the WBX as it's called today. You know, give some context as to how large that facility is. The building is uh, 34 stories. Each floor is 10,000 square feet. I haven't worked there for years, so I, I'm as far as like power wise, I believe there's 30 megawatts of power running to that. You know, it's not like these big, you know, massive data centers that have 50, 60, 100 megawatts. You know, originally it was a carrier hotel where all the where all the carriers put their pop in order to interconnect with each other. So massive fiber infrastructure. There's so many generators in that parking garage. 
and under that building and all over the place. I mean, the the building has has really matured and it's quite large. And today, Equinox, I believe, controls three floors in the uh, in that building, and then they actually converted a parking garage and turned it into another Equinox facility on on the property. So, I mean, the interesting thing about like .com and carriers, it's it's amazing that um I mean, we I mean, I'm kind of jumping forward, but um all of the kind of the first data centers that I was exposed to for co-location facilities were all converted carrier pops. So, CO central offices that were inside the Weston building, not not outside of the building. I mean, outside of the building, the carriers had their COs, their central offices. And they would put their own infrastructure, you know, their own internet infrastructure and their own COs. But as far as like the Weston building, um, anytime that a carrier moved out or whatever, a co-location operator would come in and convert the carrier pop into a small data center. In that building is, so there's how many different carriers do you think are, are on net in that property? Probably 300 maybe. So in the Pacific Northwest, like who are the main carrier hotels that have that kind of volume? Only the Western. So you happen to stumble upon not only making a decision to get, you know, get into fiber, but then start working inside one of the, one of the largest carrier hotels in the country and the world at, you know, in your twenties. Yes. You know, it was the ultimate geek fantasy for sure. You know, and as you're right, you know, people, I mean, people that know me, I mean, I can still walk into that building. I mean, I know everybody that works in there still. I mean, I haven't worked in that building for eight years, maybe. I don't know. But um, all roads lead to the West End if you have a data center in the Northwest. You can't, you can't get away from not having, not backhauling to the West End. Or, I mean, everybody's connected to the West End building. So getting back to the timeline then, so you're, you're in that building, how do you start playing around with the, the crack units and the generators and the UPSs? <laughs> so I was, I was doing a project for uh, MCI WorldCom and um, I was building um, infrastructure to the meet me room for them. And uh, the, uh, the manager, his name, this guy's name, his name was Mike DeBose. I remember, I remember being in the meet me room and him just standing there, just blabbing, la 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 la, talking about the internet and this and that, you know. And I'm like, I looked at him and I go, "So what do you do?" He's like, "Oh, you want to come and see what I do all day?" And I'm like, "Yeah." So he took me down to what's it was the I was up on the 19th floor. He took me down to the 14th floor, which was his pop, and I go walking in there. It was DS1 panels, DS3 panels, OC48, OC192, uh, network element frames, um, DAXs. There was a DMS500 super node in there, which is a big phone switch. And then on one side of the building was all UUNet, um, all the modem banks and their big backbone routers. And... Um, I look at him and I go, oh, man, it'd be so cool to get a job in here. And he looked at me and he said, oh, funny, you should ask that. We're actually hiring. And I went, what? So um, he's like, oh, here, call this guy. So I call him up and uh, he's like, yeah, great. Oh, so so Mike vouches for you. All right. When can you start? And I'm just looking at these guys like, uh, uh, you know, and I'm like, 
uh, in a week. And they're like, great. So all of a sudden I go from, you know, working in manholes and, you know, doing outside plant fibers flight. I mean, you know, I mean, I used to do a lot of stuff to working inside out of the rain in this like massive facility with that, you know, just, it just hums from all of the, all of the fans and all the old antiquated equipment. And there's just blinky lights everywhere. You know, it's like, it's almost like you're in a spaceship almost, you know, at the time. And I'm just like looking around going, and I remember, I remember like, it took about a month and Mike, my boss, Mike, he was like, all right, now you're going to learn the power infrastructure, you know, just like out of the blue. And I'm like, what does that mean? He's like, Oh yeah. Oh, 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 I didn't tell you. Oh yeah. You're going to exercise the generators tonight. And I just looked at him like, what? <laughs> He's like, yeah, don't worry about it. He goes, if anything really bad happens, just call the knock. They'll, they'll walk you through it. And I'm like, uh, so our generators were out on the parking garage, which was right, right next to the Weston building. So he hands me this book that has a step-by-step on how to start up the generators, do the load bank. We had a load bank on the gens because you don't want to wet stack generators unless you absolutely have to. You were doing the solo or did you have some people with you? No, mm -mm, no, no. He literally just gave you a run book and said, figure it out. Yeah, (laughs) yeah. He basically basically looked at me and said, you look smart. Here's a book. And I'm just yeah. like, try uh, not to electrocute uh, yourself in the process. Yeah. Yeah. And, and then he's like, Oh yeah. He's like, um, after you do that, um, he goes, if, if you, if you pass this, then we'll let you do the real stuff. And I'm like, I'm looking at him like, what's the real stuff? <laughs> you know? And, um, so, um, yeah. So I spin all the generators up. I, I, um, um, you know, I'm, I'm throwing the breakers on the load bank and I'm, you know, I load the generator up and, you know, it's a little intimidating, you know, cause one, you're like outside and you're, you know, and it's raining and it's like mm, one o'clock in the morning and, you know, and I'm just standing out there and I'm like thinking to myself, like, oh man, this is a really cool job. <laughs> you know? And I'm like, you know, playing with generators i never thought i'd play with generators you know and so i do the i do the load bank and i i run the gens for like i don't know 20 30 minutes and um um there you know there's some procedures that that you got to do when you're working in a carrier but um you know and i'm going around with a with a with a um um a clipboard and I'm taking readings on, on the inside the generate, you know, on all the gauges and everything and, um, taking readings on, on the, on the power output going out and making sure that, um, you know, the proper voltage and the proper, um, uh, so this is just anyways. a standard maintenance maintenance, you know? Yeah. 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 Kind of like what gotcha. you do in the, like what a mili- you know, the military, they're very, you know, like they're always um, <clears throat> taking readings and, you know, maintaining the gear at all times and everything. So, yeah. Um, so like a month goes by and, you know, we do this, we, uh, we do a load test every, every month to exercise the generators. And, 
So a month goes by. And he comes to me again, and he's like, guess what? I'm going to let you do the real stuff now. And I'm like, uh, you want me to exercise the generators? Oh, no. Yeah, every quarter, we drop the site load onto the generators. He goes, that's the fun part, because sometimes it, it, it doesn't work. And I'm like, you know, to me, I'm like, well, what does that mean? <laughs> you know? And uh, he's like, but I'm going to be there with you this time. So we had this, uh, we had this ATS um, or a transfer switch. Um, um, it, was a, it was an automatic. It wasn't a static. So you got to physically go downstairs and push this button and, you know, and basically transfer the load from the building onto the generators. So he puts me in front of that equipment. He's upstairs because when you, when you transfer from, uh, you know, from uh, utility to generators, sometimes the, the HVACs don't like to start up. And because at the time, you know, they were they were shoving so much equipment into these facilities because space was a premium that they were running everything on the edge, meaning the, the heat envelope. So if one of the crack units went down, the facility shot up to like 95 degrees right away. So you had to have a guy in the facility to make sure that you weren't going to melt anything. When it, when it, when the emergency power, you know, kicked in and, uh, anyways, so I'm down there, you know, in, in the building and, and we're on these radios. So I, I do the procedure and, um, the ATS decides to get stuck in neutral. So there's no utility, there's no backup power and everything, um, Everything in the in the in the CO data center, everything was run on DC power, except for the UUNet cage, which was all AC power with all the modem banks. So it gets stuck in neutral, and all what I hear is the screaming over the over the radio, like, "What did you do?" <laughs> you know, um, we so at that at that moment we took down. Uh, UUNet, all of the cr- all of the crack units were off. The environment was still running because it was running on the batteries, and the temperature is like it was. It was at seventy five degrees. Now it was at ninety eight degrees, and it was climbing. It was climbing up to a hundred degrees. How long did and, it take? How long did it take for the temperature to go from from seventy to to ninety? Like ten minutes. That's it. Because <laughs> that quick. Yeah. yeah, I don't think very many people have ever experienced that, right? They've never been in a data center when the crack units just turn off and, and have to, you know, get to experience the thrill of uh, seeing how the heat actually is being generated. A lot of people hear that, you know, servers are just right. little heaters, but no one really gets to experience how much heat is really generated by these things and how it affects the data center. So the very first time you're called in to do a, a massive site-wide maintenance you you shut the entire thing down yeah exactly you know because i'm like standing in front of this piece of gear you know and and of course it wasn't my fault but um but it doesn't matter (laughs) i pushed the button (laughs) and um i'm like what the you know so then i i you know i mean i i pull out the book 
I don't call the knock because if I would have called the knock, they would have they would have walked me through it. I pull out the book and it tells me, you know, I go to the procedure in case in case you know in case it gets stuck in neutral, do this, this, and this, and this. So I re- I restore back to utility. This this all happens within like eighteen minutes, roughly. So you know, because your adrenaline is running a million miles an hour, you're trying to read. I mean, because you know, never done this before ever. <laughs> you know, I don't even, you know, at the time, I didn't know what getting stuck in neutral meant. <laughs> you know, I mean, it's just this big piece of gear, and um, so I restore back to uh, to um, utility. I go back up the elevator and I'm up there and it's like, you know, um, my boss has a shirt off, <laughs> like, you know, running around. All the doors were open and they were trying to expel the heat out into um, out into the common areas of the building. And then he's just he just looked at me and he's like, it's not your fault. That happens every once in a while. I just didn't think it would happen, you know, today. We've had problems with that gear. Don't worry about it. You know, the company knows about it. We're going to replace it and blah, 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 blah. And I'm just looking at him like, you know, (laughs) just freaking out. Because, I mean, if it would have been like a catastrophe, like something really bad, I mean, because, you know, if I would have dropped the site, it would have taken down like half of Asia, you know. know, We had a lot of traffic running through that facility, a lot of long distance traffic and phone traffic and stuff, but so that's yeah. that's actually an interesting that's an interesting point that I think mm-hmm. um, people should know. Uh, it kind of blew my mind when I when I realized that and learned that about the sheer volume of traffic. Not you know, so the Napa of the Americas down in Miami is a similar type yeah. of story, right? So if the data yeah. center in Miami, the Verizon data center in Miami were to have major issues, it's called the Nap of the Americas, were to go down almost, you know, a huge chunk of the internet down in South America goes down. And yeah. would not many people realize that, but they also the same dynamic exists within a couple key carrier hotels on the West Coast, right? The, yeah. the Western Western building being one of them, right? So yeah. what why why is can you explain why that is and how that is? Any anywhere in the world, you have you have um, uh, carrier hotels, um, and they're they're in every city, even you know even small cities, um, not at, not at the scale of like the Westin. I mean, the Westin building is really big. I mean, there's a bunch of facilities in New York. Um, you know, you've got Miami. Um, there's one Wilshire in L.A. There's um, uh, 55 West Market, San Jose. There's 200 Paul in San Francisco, um, and then there's probably some some other carrier pops that are in San Francisco as well. But I'm just not familiar with them. Um, the reason why it's it would be so disastrous is because one, like say, if the Western Building went down, all of those terrestrial, and when I say terrestrial, I mean fiber that's buried in the ground. In, in the country that you sit in, all of that terrestrial fiber all, you know, goes to these meet me rooms in these, in these facilities and everybody interconnects with each other. I know it's hard to believe and that, that I'm going to say this, but some of the carriers aren't built redundant. So, you know, um, the legacy stuff, I mean, it was so expensive to lay this fiber that 
you know, you're not going to lay two paths, you know, I mean, I mean, there multiple carriers have multiple paths, but back then they would only have one path. So, um, the term of like multi-homed was, you know, was later on, but like the Western building when it went down, that traffic has to go somewhere else because, you know, it's basically hitting a wall. You know, if you're a carrier, you want to be connected to multiple buildings. But if you didn't have a lot of money, you know, you're just kind of connected to, you know, to one of these massive pops so you can offload your traffic. And I used to sit in, in meetings at like Nanog back in the day, and, and there were discussions about... Can you briefly describe Nanog? Just explain to the to those who are listening. Nanog is a, a North American network operating group. It's the uh, it's all the uh, uh, network engineers that actually run the internet worldwide. Well, at least in North America. I mean, everybody knows everybody. It's like a real tight community. Uh, well, I, I mean, it's it's quite large now, but in back in the day, it was pretty small. And I mean, everybody still knows everybody. Um, I was at an event or a, a cocktail hour last night with a bunch of people that had been around for years. And we were reminiscing about the old days, which was interesting listening to those guys talk because I'm a lot older than them. <laughs> and uh, um, I, I mean, I remember, you know, I mean, when I went to my first Nanog, I mean, there weren't there weren't a lot of people there. You know, uh, the the community is, um, I mean, it's quite large now because there's what twice as many data centers and twice as many people, and you know, there's networks running everywhere. But um, you know, back to back to if those buildings ever were to go down, I mean, um, there's so much. You know, you have all the undersea fiber as well, and all the undersea fiber connects to all these buildings because the undersea fiber has to offload onto the terrestrial fiber. Um, you know, it'd just be disastrous if if those buildings. I mean, you know that that should be a really large concern. Is when you know I don't want to get into security, um, you know, discussion, but. Um, if you wanted to take out the infrastructure in the in the country, um, it wouldn't be that hard. Um, it's actually really scary, like how you know vulnerable the infrastructure is in our country. It's really no different than the you know electrical grid or even some of the dams and waterways as we're we're experiencing, or at least Northern California is experiencing right now. Um, yeah, but yeah. To to that point, you know, the the duct taping of the internet. Um, I'm surprised. It, it, the good the good thing is, I was actually having a conversation with a, a mutual friend of ours, Aaron Hughes, about this very topic not very not too long ago. And you know, the one reassurance that I've I've been given, not just by him but by others, is that there are legions of extremely smart engineers, network engineers, and systems engineers. Who yeah. are watching what's going on 24-7-365. And they're, you know, almost pro bono making sure that, you know, things are are operating the way that they're supposed to. And yes, there's yeah. major agencies that are also doing the same, but there's sure. a, a collective that is um, you know, it's it's in everyone's best interest to keep this brave new digital digital infrastructure that runs the brave new digital world up and running. 
Um, and everyone can agree that if it were to go down, there would be big problems that no one really wants to deal with. And so they, they will work together, even if it's reluctantly, you know, the, the Dells and the HPs and the Googles and the Intels and the Amazons and the Facebooks, they do collectively come together to, to ensure that things are still up and running, despite the fact that, you know, as you're saying, there's some very scary key points um, in the infrastructure that are at risk. There hasn't been a major upset yet. I mean, like um, when that uh, tidal surge happened in uh, Manhattan, um, you know, I mean, as far as for the data center industry, that was like a major, you know, a major, a major thing happened because all of those facilities that are down there in Manhattan. You mean Hurricane Sandy? Yeah. yeah. Um, you know, all of a sudden, you know, you're, if your generators aren't up on the roof or up, not up, you know, up high off the street, if they're down in those sub levels, you know, they're underwater. Um, and then, um, you know, you gotta, when I don't, I, you know, I, I don't, I don't remember what happened to the, uh, cable landing stations, but I'm pretty sure some of them were underwater. I know that, I know that down in uh, Louisiana, um, when that, when that hurricane hit and that, and it flooded, uh, New Orleans. Um, I have a friend that was actually on the restoration team restoring, um, all the fiber connectivity down there. Um, all of the cable, cable, uh, mainly no, no, I don't think there were any CLSs that come in through the Gulf. I mean, I don't know. There could be, but, um, at least ones that aren't public, but, um, all of the regen huts and all of the little pop or pops and stuff. I mean, all those things were all underwater and, um, I mean, it took down a lot of stuff. Um, you know, and the, and the government and the carriers are kind of responsible for getting the, getting the backbone up in a disaster. Um, I've only, and I've only witnessed like a, a few, um, like crazy, um, network like massive ddos attacks and stuff um but as far as the physical infrastructure going down we haven't had a major catastrophe yet and um you know you better hope that that doesn't really happen like a coordinated does it you know a coordinated attack on the infrastructure because you know there's a few points that you could hit in this country and it would take forever to restore. I mean, it would just be, it, it's just scary. And, you know, and the, the scary part about it are these building owners that are clueless, you know, like it's, it's kind of, there's only a handful of building owners that really understand what's in their building. And there's a handful of building owners that have no clue on the the ramification if that room that meet me room were to disappear like they just don't get it i mean <laughs> so but well, i don't really worry i don't worry about that it. stuff anymore they huh? understand the financials of it and they understand you know how much money they're making out of it but to, yeah. to your point the risk involved with that not existing uh, not just from a financial perspective but from a 
uh, an ongoing operations of the, you know, as we're saying, the brave new digital world that we live in today um, is, is interesting. It, Christian yeah. Dawson, who's the uh, executive director for the Internet Infrastructure Coalition, and I were actually having this conversation on a prior podcast um, specifically about the classification of the data center industry and hosting industry as quote unquote critical infrastructure. And if and when that does occur, what that could mean for our industry and how that could change our industry. But what's interesting, you know, as we had just mentioned, even the stuff that is labeled critical infrastructure, like our, our electrical um, distribution across the country on the three massive grids that we have today in our nation, you know, there's still major locations that are at risk because of the very same things that we're talking about. Um, you know, legacy infrastructure, people who are in and around it, not really giving it the time and attention it deserves. Um, it'll be interesting to see over the next couple of years if we're actually going to start investing the money that is needed to really tie these things down and lock them down and make them such that they are not the the risks that they that they stand as today. Yeah, you know, and, and you know, and it's really, I mean, it's really important. I mean, the electrical grid is a is a very integral part of the data center industry. And if the data center industry doesn't, you know, I mean, I mean, you know, the bigger guys, you know, Google and Facebook and Microsoft and um, IBM, I, yeah, those those cats. I mean, they they understand, they get it, but um, you know, the power grid is run by you know private, public private companies that are not very technical. Set, you know, they're not very savvy. <laughs> so, uh, like when I talked about holistic and ecosystem, it's all it's all important, and it. it you know, it, it really, um, you know, it needs to be under one umbrella, you know, I mean, it's kind of like, you know, there needs, you know, there needs to be, it's almost like, you know, it's like a stand, like, like standards, you know, I mean, there really isn't like a holistic data center, you know, standard, you know, I mean, everybody has their own opinions and you know i mean you have your different your different i call them religions you know uptime institute and um you know all these different different philosophies you know i i after all these years it just really surprises me that you know there isn't just like one like de facto you know this is this is how we do it and this is what we do you know but uh, everybody has to be different, so because there's so many there's so many players and so many people, um, you know, it's a it's an ego problem. How I look at it, it's a it's an ego problem. But um, yeah, I was. I think you'll appreciate the story. I was at a twenty four by seven event, which is a, a, a can you can you best describe twenty four by seven? Is it? I mean, all I know is uh, a bunch of engineers who get together, you know, once a month or once a quarter. But what, what yeah. specifically is it? Um, I, you know, um, there's only really two uh, data center conferences that that I truly enjoy. Were were uh, that I that I I like to go to because I I um, you know actually learn something. <laughs> 
One of them is seven by 24. And it's basically, you know, if you're in the industry, um, you know, some people use it as a, as a, a once a year party. Other people go there to learn stuff. And the content is, is really, really good. I mean, it's all of us. It's all of our peers. We're all getting together. We're all talking about our facilities. Um, you know, we're sharing, you know, operational issues. It's a big, it's a big learning like type community, you know, and they, they have uh, chapter meetings. Um, we have seven by 24 up here in, in, in Seattle and we have seven, you know, there's one in Portland. I actually like going to the Portland one. Um, they have like better content <laughs> than the Seattle, uh, than the Seattle meetings. A lot of vendors come in, they do like, a, you know, lunch and learns, you know, or lessons learned talking about infrastructure. So I was at one of these events in Northern California and uh, the head of infrastructure for Yahoo was actually just getting done talking about their kitchen, their, their chicken coop data center design uh, that, you know, allows them to leverage outside air and have very low PUEs. And I turned to one of the engineers next to me and I asked him, so out of curiosity, are you, do you feel that a, a slab floor design is more efficient than a raised floor design? And he started to say, he said, oh, well, bare, you know, bar none, without question, it's a slab floor design. And another engineer happened to overhear him say that. And he said, well, what are you talking about? It's, it's a raised floor is far, is far more efficient. And the two of them started going at it. And I just kind of stepped back and listened. And it was very interesting. And basically what I learned out of that is it's like asking someone who's grown up programming only in .NET if .NET is better than, you know, <laughs> Java, right? And then talking to right. have a Java guy be like, who's only knows Java, talking about how Java is just so much superior than .NET. And to your point about religions, right? There's yep. There definitely are camps. And I found that those camps yep. are really based on experience, right? So if yep. all you know is Slab 4, you will be able to create a fully optimized slab floor system. If all you know is raised floor, you will be able to create a fully optimized raised floor system. So I'm, I'm curious what your, what your thoughts are, slab floor, raised floor. <laughs> <laughs> um, well, in my career, um, original, you know, when I first started off working in COs, we didn't have raised floors. It was all slab floor, but central offices, um, they really weren't con they weren't as concerned about heat than somebody in a in a data center. You know, in a data center, you're running all AC power, and there's a lot more heat because most of the equipment, most of all of our gear is DC, and you know the power grid delivers AC. So you know you're converting DC to AC. You know, and when you do that conversion. Um, there's a lot of waste heat. <laughs> you know, in a CO, there's more DC power, there's kind of less heat, but, but you know, not really. I mean, if you have a ton of DC uh, gear in there and it's got a load on it, it's going to be kicking off heat off those rectifiers. You know, I mean, I've lived in both environments. Um, raised floor? Sure. I mean... Um, I mean, I'm in a I'm in a super weird environment right now, so we'll get into that. But um, raised floor, sure. Um, you know, you're pumping pressure, cold air pressure, 
under a floor, so you're using energy to push mass amounts of cold air around under a raised floor. I don't know, man. I mean, it, that's a. I mean, my current facility has a raised floor, but it's a 24 foot raised floor, and we do things differently. We don't blow cold air up from under the floor. We suck the hot air down and out. So. So it depends, right? With the what? It depends, right? Yeah, it depends. I mean, it depends on the design. I mean, I don't, you know, I mean, on, honestly, I haven't talked to anybody. I mean, if you were just to measure, if you were just to take crack units and raised floor, um, you know, I mean, you're going to have a higher PUE because you're going to be, you're going to be expending energy to keep that floor kind of charged and keep that pressure under the floor, meaning you're going to be either running stolts, you know, those, uh, those high speed, um, vortex fans and those things. Um, so, you know, you're going to have to do your efficiency somewhere else. You know, it's going to have, you're going to have to have highly efficient UPSs to make up for that higher energy use on those crack units, shoving that cold air under the floor. But yeah, I mean, seriously, it all depends on, on what you, I don't want to say this, whatever you've been brainwashed to think. I mean, you know, if you live in this environment and you're used to, you think a 1.8, I mean, I used to have a 1.8 PUE. I mean, I have a 1.3 PUE now. Um, so where, you know, where are you today in terms of what it is that you're doing? Um, I know you mentioned what you're doing, but where, where are you doing it? Yeah. The, um, the facility that I have now is, um, uh, the total building size is 300,000 square feet. Um, it's got 24, well, 12 point, 12 point five, dual 12.5 KV feeds to the, uh, to the facility. Um, currently built out is there's 57,000 square feet at 150 watts per square foot. So about 8.6 megawatts to the floor. Um, the, the, the most unique thing about the data center, well, the first thing is, it was originally a class one chip fab, which is a really expensive building to build. Um, you know, they spent $250 million building the building. Um, nobody, well, I mean, now, I mean, I'm not, you know, way back then when it was built, if you were to, <laughs> if you were to build that building and turn it into a data center, I mean, you know, I mean, you know, Google and Microsoft and, and Apple do, do facilities like that, but not, they don't build chip fabs which are designed to have zero vibration to the floor. I mean, the infrastructure in this building is just, it, it's, it's mind boggling when you walk through it, you're just like, what, you know, um, it has a very unique cooling system. Uh, we, we do hundred percent outside air with evaporative cooling. Um, you know, in the Northwest, you can get away with that, you know, nine months out of the year, 10 months out of the year. It doesn't get every once in a while it'll get above 
maybe a hundred degrees in Seattle. Um, but, um, you know, we, we use the, uh, we run in the ashray. Um, we do, uh, 72 to 78 degree air to the floor. So we run it a little bit hotter. It's a real simple design. We pull in a hundred percent outside air up in the, up on the third floor, which we call the loft. And we have 54, 50,000 CFM air handlers. We blow the air down to the floor. And then on the floor, we're 100% containment. And we contain the hot air. And we pull the hot air down. And the hot air gets... um, um, uh, We push it, or we pull it. And we spit it outside with these big six hands down on the first floor. And then, in order to keep the in order to, to keep the uh, the data center at the proper seventy two seventy eight, we actually reuse the waste heat to uh, to heat up the data center. the B, The BMS system manages everything. There's really we don't use we don't use hand a lot, which is um, you know, manual going and adjusting everything because there's temperature sensors and there's pressure sensors in the facility. Also, the pressure sensors monitor um, the server um, fan uh, speeds. So, so the whole system kind of adjusts with the with the with the uh, server fan speeds. It's a it's a very unique design. You know, it's. It's it's along the lines of of you know it's the same philosophy as like the chicken coop. Um, there's only one other facility that's kind of like it. I believe it's out in eastern Washington. I think it's the Dell facility. You know, Dell originally came through and toured our data center because they were thinking about maybe dropping gear in our facility, and their engineers were like, "Hmm, this is a unique design," and uh, so they contracted our the guy who designed our system and they, they didn't build the exact system, but they, they used the same philosophies that the, the designer used and they built their facility out in Eastern Washington. So who, who but, owns that building? And, and it's a, it's a multi-tenant co-location facility, correct? Yes. Um, the, the building is owned by the Benaroya company. Um, the Benaroya company actually owns, our company, which is the operating company, Centaris. Um, it's a 93-acre campus. The main facility, which we call SH1, is our main data center. We actually have a cold shell building. It's called SH2. It's about 180,000 square feet of cold shell. Um, we have a 62-megawatt substation on the property. Um, that We don't own it, but it's our substation. Uh, Puget Sound Energy owns it and manages it. Um, and we have um, office tenants as well. We have another building that's just that's just office. And all the tenants that are in that building use the data center for all their infrastructure needs and stuff. So it's a holistic campus. Gotcha. And to, I think you mentioned this early on, but um, how far is that from, from the Weston building? 39 route miles, if you were to go over our, our dark fiber infrastructure. Given your, your network background, you've, you've built some pretty robust, um, diverse routes from that facility back to the Weston? 
Yeah, um, the facility's pretty unique. It it sits on a major uh, long haul backbone, uh, level three's long haul backbone. So, um, you know, like I said, a lot of facilities in the Northwest they all um, they all backhaul to the Westin. Um, I wanted to make sure that if the Westin went down, you could still get out of our facility on the network. Um, so level three goes south, Zao goes south, um, CenturyLink can go south, um, Comcast mm, maybe goes south, but they're not really, they're a regional carrier. They're not like a national, I mean, they have a national, I mean, they're huge, but they're really not in the transport business. Um, and then, uh, just recently brought in a wave broadband as our as our main carrier which they're built down to the cable landing stations it's part of our strategy we have a thing called a trans-pacific hub so we're targeting asian asian uh, clients uh, that want to drop large you know because we have industrial power um, that want to large drop large arrays into the facility and then connect to the cls's we're closer to the CLSs than the Western building. So, so let me, let me throw a couple of rapid fire questions at you. Um, uh-huh. What is the backdrop on your laptop right now? Uh, the internet in 1968. So a picture of what the, the web looked like in 1968? Not the web, um, the, uh, um, the DARPA net. Interesting. Original, where the original internet came from. Interesting. If you have someone brand new coming into the industry, what would you tell them as to some words of advice as they're coming into the data center data center industry today? Always go with your gut. That's an interesting, interesting, interesting response. How about what is something that you think is a common misconception about you know the cloud or the internet uh, or data centers in in the industry today? Always remember that the cloud has always been there. It's called hosting. Um, I mean, it's a little bit more complex than that, but to me, it's shared hosting. You know, VMware, um, you know, Amazon has their own special sauce. Microsoft, of course, rides on their Windows and server infrastructure. Um, what was the What was the other question? Well, the, what is a common misconception or, or misunderstanding of, of the industry that we work in today? To me, well, to you, me, you nothing, nothing. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, nothing. Has right. Done. It's just been yeah. labeled. Right. Yeah. Everything you pull the words right out of my mouth. It's all marketing. The technology hasn't changed. Software has changed and changes. But the technology hasn't changed. You know, we still use UPSs. We still use generators. We're still in buildings. Um, we still use software. Um, you know, there's nothing, you know, there's nothing. I mean, power gets generated out of dams where we live. It gets generated out of dams. There's nothing exotic. There's no, nothing. Like to me, the future hasn't arrived yet in my, in my head. There isn't anything exotic. You know, we're not using 
thermal electric generators in the data center. You know, we're not using um, uh, fuel cell. I mean, some people are using fuel cells, but they're dirty fuel cells. Um, they're not clean fuel cells. You know, you can't, you know, I'm not going out into my power environment and taking a gallon of water and pouring it into a tank. And it's not, you know, it's not creating hydrogen gas to fuel my fuel cell. Yeah, so fundamentally, the components of the data center have remained the same. However, those components have become more efficient over time. And sure. how how people design data centers have become a little bit more efficient. Right. Um, but, you know, the components remain the same. I guess the biggest change, we've moved from solid state to digital. Old antiquated equipment was all solid state. And, you know, like these new UPSs that I just bought like a year and a half ago, the footprint is extremely small. It's the same, it's the same energy, but everything has shrunk. You know, it's, it doesn't have, you know, solid state and, you know, antiquated equipment in it, you know, stuff that could be, uh, that they could basically digitize, they digitized it, you know. Things are shrinking, I guess. So the last question I have for you, bud, is where can people find you? If people want to connect with you or ask you questions or talk shop, sure. where, A, do, do you want them to? Sure, <laughs> um, And if you do, where, where can they find you? And also, where can they uh, look up and find more information about the, uh, the facility that you're working at? The company is called Centeris, C-E-N-T-E-R-I-S stands for Center for Information Systems. Um, I'm on LinkedIn. I mean, everybody's on LinkedIn. Just look me up, Garrick Sturgill. Connect with me. Um, I actually, I think I post my cell phone number on there once you connect with me. Uh, well, thank you again, my friend. And the, uh, the last question I have for you, uh, which is standard for, for all my podcast interviews, is do you, do you love data centers, Garrick? I do love data centers. You know, they've uh, they've taught me a lot. To me, it's a it's still an integral part of technology. Hopefully, uh, we start innovating a little more. Beautiful. Well, thank you. Have a beautiful Friday. And all right, man. I'll be talking soon. I'll probably be bringing you back on here for uh, to dive a little bit deeper into some specific topics. And uh, yeah. I love you, brother. Be well, and we'll talk soon. Bye, right, bro. Okay, man. Talk to you later. So there you have it, folks. I hope you enjoyed the interview. And before I sign off, I really need you to know that we really do love data centers over here at Open Spectrum. It's not just a, a catchy tagline for a podcast. They are our passion and our livelihood. And I encourage you to learn more about how we serve buyers, service providers, agents, master agents, and investors in the data center hosting network and cloud services space. Uh, you can check out our website at www.openspectruminc.com where you can download a mountain of free content that we produce, such as the numerous regional market reports and excerpts from our book, the Data Center Colocation Industry Playbook, that is now on its fourth edition. And I think at this point, we've sold close to over 1,200 copies of the book. You can also read the show notes and links from this podcast at www.openspectruminc.com forward slash I love data centers. Have a great week and I will see you and hopefully hear from you soon. Mm -hmm.